0: From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. On this week's episode, Sharon Klein, she's a nurse at the Yale New Haven Hospital. What does she have to say about the coronavirus pandemic? Also, who won the listener challenge from a couple weeks back? You'll find out today. I'm Ezra Graham, your host for tonight, and you are listening to News Nerds, the news podcast. Stay tuned. Yesterday, I picked a name from the hat for our our Listener Challenge. Uh, You can find the Listener Challenge in a past episode of News Nerds, but the deadline was two days ago. I picked a name out of the hat, and the lucky winner of our Listener Challenge is Rosemary from Ohio. I will be sending the prizes to her in um, just a second. Actually, I'm working on that right now, so... We'll have a new listener challenge in the next couple of weeks if you didn't get a chance to enter our last one, so look forward to that, and thank you for all the people who entered their names into the hat. just a second, we're going to go to my interview with Sharon Klein. She is a nurse at the Yale New Haven Hospital. But first, the latest news. And now for the latest news. Hurricane Laura is headed for the Texas and Louisiana coasts and is predicted hit the coast tonight. Forecasters looking at Hurricane Laura say that some coastal areas in the Gulf of Mexico could see unsurvivable storm surge. Hurricane Laura is at the moment a Category 3 hurricane, but forecasters are predicting it to become a Category 4 hurricane. Laura is expected to weaken after making landfall tonight or later on Thursday morning. The Republican National Convention is taking place. Yesterday, First Lady Melania Trump criticized news outlets for attacking President Donald Trump. She told stories of her travels around the world and hearing the history of these places. Two more days of the RNC will be taking place this week. Sharon Klein is a nurse working at the Yale New Haven Hospital, and she joins us over Zoom today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ezra. Could you tell me about the Yale New Haven Hospital?
1: Sure. Um, Yale New Haven is an academic medical center. We're a teaching hospital that's affiliated with Yale University and the medical school there. We serve the community as a general hospital, but also are a destination hospital, for specialty services like behavioral health. We have a children's hospital with specialty and newborn intensive care. And we have a Smilo Cancer Center. We also are a level one trauma center and we have a transplantation center. Combined mission of the hospital is really for patient care, for teaching, community service, and for research.
0: How big is the Yale New Haven Hospital right
1: now? So right now, New Haven Hospital is 1500 beds. There's two separate campuses in New Haven, Connecticut that make up those 1500 beds. Through time, we've evolved into a whole health system that goes through Southern Connecticut and now also Rhode Island. We have a total of five separate hospitals in the health system and numerous outpatient and ambulatory sites.
0: What do you do at the Yale New Haven Hospital for your job?
1: Okay, I am the clinical program director for the transplantation center. At our center, we do kidney, liver and heart transplants for both adult and pediatrics. We also have a living donor program for kidney and liver for both adult and pediatrics. And I have overarching responsibility for our inpatient beds, which is 42, and outpatient areas, we have four separate clinics, an infusion room, and a procedure room. And usually when you talk transplant, people want to know how many transplants you do. So in fiscal year 19, because we're not done with 20 yet, um, we've had 59, we've done 59 heart transplants. We've done a total of 144 transplants, including 49 liver kidney donors. And just as a a note, um, that's the surgery itself, but we have patients in referral process. We have over hundred patients that are listed for a kidney transplant and we follow 1500 post-kidney transplants. So there's a lot more work that goes into transplant than the surgery itself. For liver, we did 38 transplants, including nine living liver donors this past, last year. And um, just of note, the liver is the only organ that regenerates itself. So we can take half of a liver out of a living donor and put it in another person, and both halves of the liver will grow to the normal size.
0: What have been your previous jobs at the Yale New Haven Hospital
1: and what did you do in these jobs? So um, I'm a registered nurse. I have a bachelor's of science in nursing and um, also got master's in health service administration. I started my career in direct patient care as a bedside nurse and did all of the things that a bedside nurse does to assess patients, to follow physician's orders, to give medications to bathe, to take vital signs, to do dressing changes, um, do procedures, and give feedback to the physician. And from that, I grew into an assistant manager of the unit. My my first area was general surge trauma. And then I moved up to the manager of the unit, of the trauma unit. And through the years, I was covering transplant. And um, as the transplant center grew, they needed a manager for transplant. And so I took on, at the beginning, it was a 13 bed unit for a transplant. And I moved them to a 28 bed unit for transplant. And now this year we are now a 42 unit, inpatient unit for transplant. And then I also, after evolving into a 40 bed inpatient unit, took on the responsibility of the outpatient work in um, the clinic work with transplants, and that's now the clinical program director for the transplantation center.
0: How has your hospital changed in the coronavirus pandemic lately?
1: So, um, that is still a work in progress. Um, we've had changes in so many ways, really, because of the uncertain pathway um, the virus has taken. You know, we know a lot more now than we did when we started this. And for Connecticut, we really realized we had a problem um, in about mid-March when we had our our first significant outbreak. And I think for our hospital, we have um, a a very active, what we call a Plan D. It's a disaster plan. We put a lot of work into trying to be able to function in all types of disasters, be it man-made or a natural disaster. And um, so we activated our Plan D, which got us to activate our Hospital Incident Command Center. And basically, this is a method for communication. We actually have a room where our administrators go to um, work out um, the communications that are going to go out from the command center. What information are we going out? So there's no confusion in uh, messaging that comes out on what we're going to do and this center does planning and for this, this unknown pathway of this virus, the planning was really for what if we'd already seen what happened in New York and other places. So what if it really takes off in our state of Connecticut in our hospital? What if the, you've always heard, let's flatten the curve. What that meant for the hospitals that if we could flatten the curve, perhaps we'd be able to better handle our COVID patients because um, we didn't want to get into the situation of not having enough beds, which quickly um, we realized that we would have to do some bed planning um, to be able to care for all of our patients. So in the emergency room, we immediately started testing patients for with symptoms but then we also realized we had to isolate those patients from the other patients that came in for other reasons. And that quickly turned into, we really need to test everyone um, in the emergency room. And those, we call them PUIs, persons under investigation. They were tested and we didn't know the results yet. So we had to separate these um, three groups of people. We quickly were running to the point where we were closing in on all of the beds that we have and um, looking like we needed to do something with our ICUs. So um, we had to cancel elective surgeries and we used some of that operating room space to create inpatient units. We also realized that we needed more ICU beds and made contingency plans for that. Um, And also um, had to look into what other sites could we use if this grew anymore Um, Our ambulatory areas, some of our ambulatory areas, we turned into patient units just for more space. And we had to really designate units as a COVID unit and a non-COVID unit, and then supply them with what they needed to care for these patients. So now that we've created more beds and we've got more patients, we also have, how are we going to staff these areas? Certainly we We have traveling nurses that we hired to help staff these areas, but we also, as the ambulatory areas decreased their population, we looked to the ambulatory areas to see how they could be deployed to assist in inpatient care and changed our care delivery system. The ambulatory areas then moved more to telehealth and our technology took over so that Patients didn't wanna come into a clinic for a visit because they were fearful initially of the COVID patients in this setting. So what we did was some telehealth visits and phone visits for our patients with ambulatory needs. Then also, you you learn quickly that there's a whole supply chain management that has to change because we were using different supplies. And I know you've heard in the news about personal protective equipment and how some areas had difficulty um, having enough. We did not have that difficulty here. We've, We've always had what we've needed, but we also changed the supply management team and turned people in different roles into sourcers. And what they would do would really be aggressively look for sources where we could get gowns, masks, face shields, those things we would need in the care of our COVID patients. So we've used technology and IT also. We had a COVID information line where people could call and get the latest information on COVID and what they should do because, as you know, you hear much disinformation in the news on on what the real issues are. Our institution developed communicate communication pages on our websites for COVID and dashboards um, to measure um, different things that we would need, and specifically measurement of dashboards for the PPE so everybody could see what we did have in personal protective equipment to help ease their minds because of how much we heard in the news about the shortage. And anything that we needed for COVID was prioritized through our Incident Command Center. So we would we had those needs met. While all this was going on, we really realized that those people who were on the front lines caring for patients, working in areas that they hadn't worked in before, really needed a different level of support. Um, and so for our healthcare workers, we um, did video support groups, um, mindfulness meetings. Then we had a kudos board for a staff page where, Patients or family members could write in um, giving positive feedback to caregivers. Um, at one point in time, our hospital had close to 500 COVID patients on top of what we really regularly deal with. So um, that was a, a huge amount for us. And we managed to get that number down to the highlight was six patients with COVID down from close to 500 So other things that that happened and, you know, these things are happening around you and things are changing on a daily basis. So you would, everybody would go to the, you know, incident command center communications in the morning and the evening and on weekends to see what was new and what was going on. There were no in-person meetings anymore. And um, here goes the use of technology for Zoom and Skype meetings. and video meetings with the multidisciplinary team and social distancing tape. The hospital is marked with what is six feet apart, so we could socially distant, and there's signs all over for, and all healthcare workers wear the mask. Socially distant and hand hygiene, there's Purell um, stations all over. Um, So all of those things you started seeing, Elevators are marked with the maximum of four people. So bathrooms are marked with how many people could be in there. So all of those things were changes that we were were seeing. And while all this is going on, we also had to realize that we had to test all patients, anyone who came in the hospital. So we developed um, testing centers at various points, uh, entryways into the hospital where anyone would have to go through a screening, a temperature checking, and ensure that they have a proper mask before they'd be allowed to go any further. So then we had a staff these centers. So for that, we used some of our ambulatory staff again, whose sites had closed because we couldn't do certain aerosolizing procedures. Along with that, there were less people on site because those staff that were not clinical, like your finance people, they were working from home to decrease the the number of people that are in our institution roaming that could possibly have an exposure or expose patients. So those are some of the things that we did. Also, I should mention, you know, to limit exposure, we also stopped visitors, And this is something that was incredibly hard, certainly on patients, certainly on their families and loved ones, but also very hard on the staff because the staff then really needed to take up that that support that families and loved ones do. And that was um, really a, a very touchy and ethical decision, but we made that decision in an effort to try to contain um, the virus. So also we had volunteers that usually from the community come and work in the hospital and they would take a book card around to patients, they'd visit with patients. And we also had a group of volunteers that had therapy dogs and they would come into the hospital and do visits with patients who appreciated um, a visit from a dog, um, a sense of normal life. Um, And so we had to stop those volunteers and the the dog visits also virtually so many things have changed. It's hard to even list everything But um, no celebrations in the way that we used to have celebrations because you couldn't gather in a group and so slowly um, we decreased our numbers and now we're in what we call the recovery phase where we are now bringing back some elective surgeries starting ambulatory clinics over again and i think the whole thing where we're at now is also looking at the tremendous financial loss that the institution and system has has had which probably totals about 750 million dollars wow lots yes of wow
0: there <laughs> Well, it's good that you're that they've been doing the hotline because, as we know, lots of misinformation is being spread, and also it's you know hard. I I assume for no um, no visitors to be there because the, the patients really depend on that. So, right. are you and the people you work with in contact with the people that have COVID
1: nineteen. So. For myself, the people I work with, yes, we were in direct contact with um, COVID 19 patients, and we are in contact still with people treating COVID um, 19 patients. So that's a given, and that is why we stress so much hand washing, social distancing, and masks at all points in time.
0: Yes. And uh, building up on that question, how often do you and your colleagues get tested for coronavirus if you are in contact with the people that have it?
1: So that's a a great question. Um, Know that where we started was um, all healthcare workers had to go through our screening process. Were they traveled? Were they exposed to anyone? We do, every employee does a temperature check twice a day to see if there's any temperature. We have a COVID call line, which is manned by our occupational health Um, for any employee questions, for any patient or any, uh, sorry, any healthcare worker that develops any symptom, they do not report to work and they go get tested. We have um, several test sites set up, drive-through test sites that we schedule appointments at. One of the things that we did because we have um, twenty thousand employees here, we wanted to know what is the rate of asymptomatic healthcare workers testing positive for COVID. And we did tested about ten thousand of our workers, healthcare workers, and for us here, our COVID positive was less than one percent. It was very slight. So we do not routinely do asymptomatic testing, but we do testing after temperature checks, after any type of symptoms, we encourage testing. And um, those tests are done through occupational health, followed by occupational health, and anyone tested must be cleared by occupational health before they return to on-site duty.
0: If you... Uh, have a temperature that is above normal, what what do you do?
1: If you have a temperature of 100 or above, you call our COVID um, testing site line. And then they will schedule you for a test.
0: I think I know the answer to this question already, hearing what you have said, but working in a hospital, are you more worried about the coronavirus than if you were not working in the hospital?
1: Ezra, I think there's really two ways I would, would answer that. I think for those um, healthcare workers that have seen what the virus actually does and seen the virus at its worst, they're very cognizant of the danger of the virus and they're very careful with personal protective equipment. They know what the danger is and they treat that um, isolation hand washing, mask wearing, face mask and gown if you're direct in contact with people, Um, negative pressure rooms for COVID positive patients, non-aerosol procedures for COVID positive patients. These are things that they take seriously because they know the risk. Um, And the rest of the hospital that aren't patient facing with patients that have COVID also all wear masks, wash their hands regularly, practice social distancing, and you know, follow that rule. Actually, the president of our system actually makes rounds in all areas to ensure that they also just kind of keep an eye to ensure that everybody's doing the right thing with the mask wearing. There are some times that when I'm out and about and I'm, I make a, a rare trip to the grocery store, I almost become more concerned about exposure because I'm so aware of wearing a mask and what should be done. And when I see people who don't take it seriously, not wearing masks and not social distancing, that makes me worry.
0: Do you feel that the state of Connecticut that you are in right now and the whole of the United States has acted responsibly to curb the spread of the coronavirus?
1: So, That's, in many ways, a a tough question. Um, I think there are things we know about the virus now that we didn't know initially. Um, And I know that there's gonna be things come January that we'll know about the virus that we don't know today. So I think in many ways it's an evolving situation. I think Connecticut, um, we we got hit early and I think the state as a whole has, has done well with decreasing the number of um, patients that are positive with COVID-19. Um, but I'm also very much aware that we have to stay on our toes and ensure that we can keep it that way. I mean, you can see that there's outbreaks in other states and it doesn't take a lot. It takes a gathering of a few people who are not you know, wearing a mask or social distancing. And so that still is a concern. I think you've seen that some places in the United States have um, done well with um, not having large numbers, and others who did have spikes um, have managed to decrease them. But you, you also see areas and individuals that have not really taken this seriously, and I. My message would be that we, we really need to, and there's a few simple things that you can do um, as your personal accountability to take it seriously, and that is to frequently wash your hands, wear a mask and social distance.
0: Okay, let's go out of the hospital and here's my next question. What does your normal life at home look like? And has that changed because of the coronavirus pandemic?
1: It's changed in, in, again, many ways. Um, I think um, one of the things that um, we would always like to do would be to go out to eat in a restaurant. I mean, that would be um, probably a weekly activity for us. Mm -hmm. And that we have not gone to a restaurant um, since the end of February, maybe the very beginning of March. Um, So no eating out. Um, Recently, in just the last few weeks, we managed to find takeout places that um, will deliver into your car for you so we've done that um, no travel as you know I we would love to come out to Montana um, but we really can't at this point in time And some other things that you don't stop to think about but if you have something in your house that um, breaks and you need a repairman coming in that whole scene looks different now too with social distancing and pirelling and washing surfaces. So that's different. Um, shopping, um, I, you know, there's no more looking in a store to browse just to see what's there. Um, it's really a, okay, if we need groceries. This is going to be a, um, once make it, get your list together, get everything you need in one trip. And what we've also tried to do is okay, this is our one outing. How can we make this more pleasurable and have um, actually made the grocery store trip um, a drive in the country before you get to the grocery store, a different way home. Maybe you can find a waterway to sit in the car next to. Um, Many of our beaches are closed here in Connecticut and they're limiting the number of people that can be on the beach at any point in time for those that are open. So that's not... um, that that's, again, a change for us. So there's really no swimming at the beaches, per se. Um, and, you know, I have a group of friends that I'd love to see. We would do things together. We would um, go out to dinner. You know, that, that has really gone by the wayside also. And the technology has really taken over for those sorts of things.
0: So hearing what you had to say in the last question, I'm wondering what do Connecticut's public places look like right now?
1: So, um, well, as I just said, um, our beaches are limited in capacity. So when you, we find on the road that shows you which beaches are closed, and we have state police at the entrance to keep track of that. The restaurants, there's not a lot of in-restaurant dining, um, we've moved more to some dining uh, intense outside restaurants, and some have been very creative. There's no bars open. There's no um, health workout places open, gyms. There's no large groups that can be held. So, um, you know, some of my staff had planned weddings with um, many people. Um, that is all a changing scene. There are much smaller venues for weddings trying to Um, Do more outdoor weddings, because if you're outside, um, the risk is less than if you're in an enclosed, close space, but there is still a risk for a large group of people.
0: Even without the coronavirus sweeping the nation, what activities do you enjoy at your house and around your town?
1: So I think um, I like to work in the garden. I love to be outside and that can continue. Um, I, I think I have a totally new appreciation for technology and what can do be done over Zoom and Skype and how you connect with people over technology. Um, drives in the car um, to different places um, have a whole new enjoyment to them. Um, and, you know, really, you have to kind of almost create a different type of special time at home um, with dinners rather than dinner out. And, you know, I really enjoy spending time with my husband and with my dog.
0: What are some of the highlights in the coronavirus pandemic for you?
1: So I think um, for me and for many of us here um, at, you know, I'll talk about the hospital as there's... There's some expected highlights and then there were some really totally unexpected highlights. Um, and when I talk about expected highlights, watching the numbers go down. Um, did, that was a beautiful thing that we would watch every day, the decrease in the numbers. And As I said, sometimes you have to find something to um, be positive about. So we would play music, a certain song at the hospital anytime we discharged a patient with COVID-19 successfully. They were discharged and alive and well. And so to play a certain song really brought hope to the healthcare workers. Um, I think for us at the hospital, A new type of teamwork through Zoom was a highlight, and um, many people um, have remarked about that, um, despite the fact that we struggled a bit at first to get everything together. Um, And the togetherness, um, we are all in this together. And the system work, as I said, we had five hospitals, but for the hospital, the patients um, kind of came out of New York, and the virus went to our Greenwich Hospital and then to Bridgeport and we developed a teamwork within the hospital. When Greenwich was overwhelmed, they're a smaller hospital, they're closer to New York, they actually sent some of their patients to us to care for them um, so they could manage what they have. So there was a teamwork there. And I think the unexpected highlights that really touched people is the community appreciation for the healthcare workers. I don't think any of us expected that. There were signs in appreciation for healthcare workers. Our fire departments um, would notify the hospital they were going to do in honor of healthcare workers, do full sirens, um, perimeter of the hospital, drive around at certain times of the day. And it gave um, staff something to look forward to, community rounds that were closed, Ended cooking meals and and giving them to different units um, in appreciation. Um, Our staff, my transplant staff, crocheted a device that fits on the back of your head. It's a headband with two buttons on so that your mask can fit over the buttons to hold it on your head instead of around your ears. Because trust me, wearing a face mask for 12 hours it makes your ears sore. So a totally unexpected with, what our patients did for us and totally appreciated. Um, some of our um, transplant patients that I said we followed them for years, they made videos um, and sent them to their coordinators and our physicians um, to say how much they appreciated them. Um, and I think um, you already know that um, I am a dog person. So This is National Dog Day. And something that really touched people unexpectedly was one day we saw on our screen that there was going to be a dog parade. So our volunteers who had the therapy dogs arranged with them to come to the hospital, do a dog parade around the whole perimeter of the hospital. And they had their little red jackets on for a volunteer and they had signs that said, we support our healthcare workers. And it really touched everyone, Um, the volunteers to go out of their way to do that for us. And the dogs looked so happy that they were back at their job, um, visiting healthcare workers. And it really looked like they recognized us and it just, it brought staff to tears. And I think it was a way of glancing at what was normal. Um, And from that one that they scheduled, they scheduled three more because it it was so moving.
0: It's Wednesday, August 26th, International Dog Day. And we've been listening to Sharon Klein. She is the Clinical Program Director in Transplantation at the Yale New Haven Hospital. And she joined us today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ezra.
0: now it's time for Wildlife Journal. As big as a small to medium-sized dog, the honey badger is a feisty and fierce little animal. Even though this animal is small, they are built for battle. These animals have been known to confront lions and kill venomous snakes. Their claws and teeth are strong enough to crack a tortoise shell. Black fur coats the honey badger's face, legs, and bottom half of the body, while white fur turns down from the top of their head to their tail. Underneath the fur is loose, thick skin that protects the animal in fights. The neck of a honey badger cannot be penetrated by porcupine quills, bee stings, and dog bites. Another tool that honey badgers can use to defend themselves is is their anal glands that shoot out very foul, smelly liquid. These glands serve them in two ways, to mark their territory and to get out of tough fights. The honey badger has large brains for their size that they use in various situations. They also use tools, which is thought of as a sign of intelligence. They have been known to work together and use tools such as rocks to get out of enclosures. Honey badgers eat many different scrumptious things like rodents, reptiles, berries, birds, roots, and fruit. Their nose helps sniff out food underground and their claws help them catch and dig for food. Honey badgers live in sub-Saharan Africa, Indian India, and the Middle East. They live in rainforests and mountains at the same time. The male honey badger has larger territories than the female, but the two can overlap. Every day, honey badgers typically make a new bed around their area. Luckily for these cute but fierce animals, the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List classifies honey badgers as a species of least concern that's it for wildlife journal and now it's time for a musical segment i made up a this song it's amazing i just made it up on the spot it's great so here it is without further ado myself singing this song Oh, when you listen to news nerds, we'll talk about cheese curds. Not a lot of stuff rhymes with news nerds. We'll talk about the wildest things, pigs with bright blue wings, and then we'll talk about pink manta rays. You'll have the most... Fun that you've had in days. Oh, I try to put in some nerdy news, and you'll hear lots of moves. Yeah, you'll hear lots of moves when you listen to News Nerds. Thank you, thank you, everyone. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Our sound effects were provided by the toy chest downstairs, an umbrella, a ukulele that is badly off-tune, and I just stepped on it a couple weeks ago, and now it's kind of falling apart, um, and some Tinker Toys, also with our cow sound effect. Thank you, and that ends our musical segment. It's time for By the Numbers, where we track how many cases and deaths because of the coronavirus there are throughout the world and in the United States. We have just um, looked at the stats, and the global deaths because of the coronavirus stand at 821,351. And global cases are at 23,979,121. Cases in the United States are at 5 million seven hundred ninety six thousand seven hundred and seventy two and that's it for by the numbers the most cheerful part of your day Cowboys! that's it for this week's episode of news nerds thank you sharon for being on this week's episode I'm Ezra Graham. You can go to our website, newsnerdshost.wixsite.com podcast and listen to previous episodes of News Nerds. We'll see you next week.